Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in the book of Romans today, The Lifestyle of the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Genuine Love. It has been said that there is no institution on earth that can love you so well and at the same time hurt you so deeply as the Church of Jesus Christ. Many are the stories of people who have found family and belonging and care and fellowship and affection, purpose and meaning in the company of the local church. But unfortunately, many also are those who have at one time been at the center of their fellowship and then through a series of events that should never have occurred, were wounded and cast out and then never followed up, and restitution was never made. I personally have met them everywhere. I've seen the longing, the anger, I've seen the scars, and they're not alone. I too have felt both love and wounds in the local church. But I, with many others, will never give up on the local church. For one, the local church is the body of Christ. And if Christ commands us never to desert his church, we will not. And secondly, the local church is a part of the lifestyle of every believer. We live in community. I've started a series entitled The Lifestyle of the Gospel from Romans 12 to 16. Now, in this series, we've seen that the very foundations of the Christian lifestyle is the transformation of the person by the renewing of the mind. That is, in Christ, we no longer look at life in the same way. Instead of being self-focused, given to sensuality and, and pursuing evil, we now revel in the mercies of God. And in gratefulness to the God who has redeemed us from our sins and loved us in the gospel of Christ, we seek to lay down our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that commitment becomes overwhelmingly practical. For one, we approach all things not in boastfulness, but in humility. After all, what is there to be boastful about? We were helpless sinners. I mean, part of the renewing of the mind is, is to adopt the stance of humility. But there is more. To be renewed in mind means we're no longer to live our lives individualistically. Instead, we've become one body. We, we've become a part of the community of the local church. And then, in order to demonstrate how to live in community, Paul, the author of Romans, tells us to use the spiritual gifts that God has given each of us. And then Paul gives examples of the gifts. Let me read Romans 12, 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I ended yesterday by defining the first gift in the sample list of gifts that are provided for us in this passage. Please remember that Paul is making the point that no one person has all the gifts. And Paul's also making the point that the gifts are to be used to serve each other. And finally, he's making the point that the gifts are so designed that, that by themselves, they're insufficient. Having and using gifts makes us dependent on others others who have very different gifts than we have. And Paul begins with the gift of prophecy. And, and yesterday I made the point that the prophecy that he's referring to is a gift that speaks to immediate concerns and it's not about teaching doctrine. 
Next, Paul adds the gift of service. And when he mentions service, he's speaking about caring for the practical needs of others. The Greek word for service here is the word diakonos. It's the same word that we use to describe the office of a deacon. Well, in this passage, Paul's not speaking about deacons, but rather he's simply talking about serving one another. But we can draw a contrast. You see, a church deacon is a church officer who serves tables, who visits the sick, who undertakes matters which deal with the practical needs of others. And and Paul says it's a gift. It's given by God. Next, Paul adds the gift of teaching, and and I find it fascinating that Paul makes a distinction between prophesying and teaching. A prophet may have a word about someone's immediate concern, but God has appointed teachers and preachers to declare the great doctrinal truths of the gospel. That's a very different gift. Next, Paul adds exhortation. Now, what's the difference between exhortation and teaching? Well, the Greek word means to call out to someone earnestly. The word has also been translated as as either appeal or even to plead. It's thought that this word is related to the preaching act. So, preachers are called to be teachers. I mean, that's sure. But teachers are called to explain the great doctrines of the word. But preachers are called to apply the word, to make it practical to urgently plead with God's people to remain faithful to the gospel. And that's the task of a preacher. The preacher has got to make sure that people know what to do with the word. See, the Bible is not an intellectual exercise that's concerned with understanding doctrine. It's it's an exercise of knowing on the basis of doctrine how God wants us to live. That's why all of us need to hear preaching because the Holy Spirit uses preaching to challenge our hearts and to continually bring us to obedience. And then Paul adds, contribute generously. Now look, God wants all of us to give. I know that there are those who take issue with me on this, and that's fine, but I think it's just a biblical baseline. First 10% of our income belongs to the Lord. But this is where things get really cool. You see, God calls some people to give above and beyond the tithe. Often it's because he's blessed them financially. I mean, some of God's people have been gifted with making a lot of money, and they have seen this as a divine opportunity to give. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many mission projects, how many church plants, how many ministries to the poor, all of these have been started and sustained by the gifts of those who see giving as their primary gift. Now, Paul then talks about those who lead. In the New Testament, leadership of the local church is the leadership of the elders. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul calls elders to rule well. You know, in this passage, it tells them to rule with zeal and enthusiasm and with great joy for the task. And then finally, Paul mentions those who do acts of mercy, and he speaks about doing it cheerfully. So, having given a sample list of spiritual gifts, if you're following the text, Paul does something here that's almost identical to what he does in 1 Corinthians 12 to 13. Now, now those of you who know those two chapters well will remember that in 1 Corinthians 12, it's a very famous chapter, it speaks about the various gifts that the Holy Spirit gives the local church. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, that is the next chapter, it begins with the words, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You see what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13? He moves from a discussion of spiritual gifts to a discussion about love. He wants to teach that the use of spiritual gifts without love, well, that's worthless. That's exactly what he does here in Romans 12. After having given a sampling of spiritual gifts, well, well, let me allow Paul to speak for himself. I'm reading now Romans 12, 9 to 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If you're paying attention, you'll have noticed a series of 13 commands or 13 imperatives. You know, one Bible teacher has called these staccato imperatives, and and he meant that the commands are coming out of Paul's mouth in kind of a rapid-fire fashion, one following the other. But in reality, what appears as imperatives in our English Bible are are actually in the Greek a series of 10 participles. Now, if you don't know what a participle is in English, well, they're often verbs that end in ing. So, for instance, you might have a present indicative active verb, the word or the verb to boil. But if we talk about the boiling water, well, that's a present tense participle. So, in effect, Paul speaks about abhorring evil and showing honor and being fervent in spirit. Now, the reason I mention this is because Paul is not so much commanding the Roman Christians as he is encouraging to keep on doing these things. See, by putting matters in the present tense in a participle, he's urging them that they must keep doing these things. Never stop, he says. And if you think about it, that's a wonderful way of expressing himself. Paul is saying, make sure you never stop loving each other while you're carrying out spiritual gifts. As Christmas is upon us, my thoughts of the Holy Land are magnified. I begin to reflect upon the stories of Jesus' birth, life, sacrifice, and ultimate glorification more closely. And in so doing, my anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Israel experience grows. There we walk the paths and places that bring the stories of the Bible to life. As time draws close, we invite you to join us for this adventure April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back of the Bible Canada team. The full itinerary is available online, but space is limited, and we're nearing capacity, so register soon. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash events. So how are we to deal with the 13 appeals in Romans 12, 9 to 13? Well, the problem with 13 appeals or commands or exhortations is that it's hard to remember all 13. But if you look closely at the list, the very first, let love be genuine, 
seems to act like a heading. Everything that follows seems to be a description as to how believers in Christ must keep love as a priority. But what's Paul saying? Well, the word translated as genuine has also been translated as sincere. Another English Bible, the the Christian Standard Bible, says, let love be without hypocrisy. And the Greek word is the word anipocritus. Now, that word is a derivation of another Greek word, the word hypocritos. Now, in the Greek world, the, the word hypocritos, well, it was an actor playing a role on a stage. You know, in the older English language, we used to call actors pretenders. And historically, pretenders had a very bad reputation. I mean, you'd never trust an actor or an actress, and and that's because they spent their entire lives pretending to be someone very different from who they actually were. And so Paul says, you've got to be very careful never to allow love to be a pretense or a stage play in order to please your audience. We should know this is very possible. I mean, for one, We've all heard of people, I mean, they're pretending in church on Sunday morning. You know, husband and wife have had a fight and the kids are in crisis, the money's tight, the, the job situation looks tough, and, and then they show up in the church lobby and, and someone greets them and says, hey guys, how you doing? And we all know what they say. They say, well, God's good and so are we. And that's a bit of pretense and it might not be so bad. I mean, after all, it, it's very tough to know what to say to someone in a church lobby but let's use that as an example of someone who doesn't love at all. Let's assume that this unloving person has made it onto the the local church board. And because he's hung around the church circles for so long, he knows all the right language. He knows how to act in front of others. But that masks a deeply unloving spirit. And when he's not in the spotlight, he frequently criticizes others and even discreetly spreads nasty rumors. And when someone is hurting, He never goes out of his way in order to meet his or her needs. And that's because, truth be told, he really doesn't care that much. And so Paul wants God's people to keep on loving, but the command is this. Don't you ever allow the love that you had at first, that that love that, that defines the lifestyle of the Christian, don't you let it become a stage play. Now, that's the central exhortation. And once we see that, as we go through the remaining eight appeals, Now, we may notice here that that we can group them into four groups. I call the first group the appeal for discernment. Look at it this way. In order to prevent your love from ever becoming a stage play, you will need to continue to exercise Christian discernment. The last half of verse 9 says, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Again, other translations say, Hate what is evil. So I find it interesting how quickly Paul moves from love to hate. I mean, you see that in the passage. But this is essential. Christian love must never be confused with sentimentality. The Greek word translated either as abhor or hate, well, it's a very strong word. It expresses a deep inner loathing. In contrast, Paul says, hold fast or or cling to what is good. Let's see if we can play with that image. Now, in the context of love, we should know how often wickedness or sin destroys love. Let's use the example of slander, gossip, so easily finds root in a a local church. What would it be if a local church of believers on any given Sunday thought that slander and gossip was a thing most evil? Someone says, of someone else. 
You know, that person's so selfish. Look how self-centered she is. And immediately someone interjects, hey, we're not going to have that kind of talk here. Sister so-and-so is not here to defend herself. And to gossip and to slander, that's an evil thing. Maybe we should stop and pray and ask God to forgive such an attitude. You know, what would the result be if, if evil were truly viewed as evil? You know, I have found that slander is one of the greatest weapons of Satan. What if we went on a crusade against it? But that's just one example. Consider what happens in the church of Jesus when, when malice or greed or deceit or covetousness is allowed to carry on. See, each one of these sins must not just be guarded against. We must develop an inner hatred of those very sins. And so the first way to safeguard against ever allowing love to be merely a pretense is to hate evil. And then second, we need to develop a deep affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice verse 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Notice that in this verse, the phrase one another shows up twice. The phrase implies relationship. Paul is assuming that there's an interaction between God's people. You know, that's one of the reasons why simply attending on Sunday morning and then going home, well, that's not what the Bible has in mind when it discusses the Christian lifestyle. See, one another means I have dealings with the other. Well, I don't know about you, but, but I think from one perspective, you know, the church is an awfully disappointing place. I mean, don't you wish it had a higher class, a, you know, a better customer base? Now, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 1 when, when he reminds that church that, that not many of them were considered important by worldly standards. But genuine involvement in the church means interaction with those who are there. Now, says Paul, be devoted to those people. The phrase brotherly love, well, it means we're treated as a family. You know, the thing about family, if you stay with your family, is that you have to put up with each other. There is a devotion to the family unit, and be that way in the church. But when Paul goes beyond that, he even demands that there be a healthy competition in which we actively look to outdo one another in, in showing honor to each other. More literally, the phrase means esteem others more highly even than yourself. And that means we notice each other. We, we help each other. We're there for each other. We're willing to promote each other. Okay, Paul has said that, that we develop a healthy hatred of evil and an active concern for one another, and now comes the third urgent appeal. I think it's the longest set of commands, and he urges God's people to remain enthusiastic about the people of God. So in verses 11 and 12, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's a, that's a whole series of short commands. But once we understand that the context is love for fellow believers, well, all those commands make sense. Don't get lazy and nurturing and enthusiasm about being in a loving relationship with fellow believers. Keep a passionate attitude in your heart towards them. Celebrate the future that your brother and sister in Christ have in Christ, for they will one day be perfected and they will inherit an eternal reward. Just think about that. And when they go through difficulties or even when your relationship goes through difficulties, be patient with them. 
This is not yet the end. And above all, never, never stop praying, both for yourself and for brother and sister and for the church as a whole. Well, that's it. Hate evil. Love each other. And don't let your zeal wilt like an unwatered plant. Paul's still not done. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. See, his last point is simply this. Do something concrete for your brothers or sisters. I remember once a, a brother in the church had an idea. He was a mechanic, and he wanted others like him, fellow mechanics, to volunteer. So for one Saturday, all single moms could bring their car for a tune-up and a diagnosis of the car's condition, all for free, and all to contribute to the needs of a group in the church that often felt frustrated by this very need. That's the issue. Get practical. Think of ways of blessing others. Well, we've noticed that Paul's speaking about the lifestyle of the gospel. And have you noticed what Paul has been teaching us? He's not started with rules of do's and don'ts. He hasn't told us if it's okay to, to party or to smoke cigarettes. No, no, for Paul, the way to live the Christian lifestyle begins in the mind. It's about nurturing a transformed way of living based on the mercy of God. And then when he gets practical, the place to begin is in the nurturing love of the local church. Live in community, he says. View God's people as your family and nurture a spirit of love that is so genuine that it lives out the implications of the gospel in relation to the other. That's Christian lifestyle lived in the local church. John, let me ask you a question. What do we say to the person who says, I'm a believer, but I don't need to participate in the local church? Yeah, I, I guess one always starts by asking how it is they've come to think that. And, and Ben, sometimes they've come to think that because they've been deeply harmed by the local church. And at that time, I, I just want to be gentle and gently, however, guide them back into their commitment to a local family of believers. But for some, it's kind of almost like a badge of honor. I don't care about those hypocrites, you know, that kind of language, and we've all heard that. And I guess I would just always respond by saying, well, then the Bible is not for you because there isn't a single New Testament book that's written to an individual. They're all written to churches. I mean, even a book like First Timothy or Titus, I mean, even though they're written to individuals, those individuals were pastors of a local church, and it's about how to give leadership there. So, you know, the, the New Testament just assumes the church at every point in time, and there's just no getting away from it. Christian living is living in the body of Christ, his local church. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue in this series in the book of Romans, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. By the time you hear this, Christmas excitement has already begun to fill the air. Our Yuletide expectations are seeded by childhood memories, media hype, vendor advertising, and church traditions. We forecast Christmas with such heightened hopes that can often disappoint Christmas morning. Well, this month, Dr. John shares a new Christmas series called The Hope of the Ages, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of God's intent. Jesus, the fulfillment of our Christmas aspirations, the hope of the ages. It's a message that must be shared year-round, and your partnership makes that possible. Thanks for all you do, and please continue to stand with us as we strive toward our year-end goal of $490,000 by December 31st. 
Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.